0: If you'll take your Bible out today and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Judges. The Old Testament book of Judges, you'll find that right after the first five books of Moses. Then you have Joshua, and then of course you come to the book of Judges. Today's message will be an introductory message as we are beginning a new series through the book of Judges. never preached through this book before, but looking forward to it and the lessons that it will teach us and how it will apply to our our lives. But the title of today's message is Caught in the Sin Cycle. We're going to be starting in Judges chapter 1, hopefully making it uh, into Judges chapter 3. But as today is a special day on our calendar, we're celebrating Independence Day. We're looking back at the founding of our country. We're looking up as we are thanking God for His benevolence, His grace, His mercy upon our land. And we are hopefully looking forward to the future of America. And as we think about this day, there's a famous story about Founding Father Benjamin Franklin and how the deliberations of the Constitutional Convention of 1787 were being held in strict secrecy. And consequently, there were anxious citizens who... Gathered outside Independence Hall in Philadelphia when those proceedings had ended, in order to learn what kind of government had been produced behind closed doors. Well, the answer was provided pretty quickly as a spinster lady, a Miss Powell, approached Benjamin Franklin and asked him, Well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? And with little hesitation, Benjamin Franklin famously responded, A republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. And what Benjamin Franklin was getting at was that republics are fragile creatures and they rely upon the moral virtue of the people. Along with that, almost 200 years ago, there was a Scottish professor... A man named Alexander Teitler who studied the rise and fall of nations down through the ages and he distilled the life cycle of a nation like this. He said, quote, The average age of the world's greatest civilizations from the beginning of history has been about 200 years. And during those 200 years, he said, These nations have progressed through the following sequence. From bondage to spiritual faith, spiritual faith to courage, from courage to liberty, liberty to abundance, from abundance to complacency, complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, and from dependence back into bondage. So you can see the cycle that the nation goes through up and down. And if that assessment of history is correct, then you can clearly see that the current trend has our nation sliding back, even quickly now, into bondage. Many are asking today, where did we go wrong? As they see the radical cultural change around them, as they feel like the ground beneath them has been shaking, how did we get here, they're asking. Well, I think that President number 40, Ronald Reagan, may have summed it up best when he said, if we ever forget that we are one nation under God, we will be a nation gone under. Now I mention that story about Benjamin Franklin and our founding fathers because they studied the republics of antiquity, the great civilizations such as Greece and Rome. And they knew that ultimately what brought these empires down was immorality. They knew that America would stand or fall on the moral virtue of its people because, friend, you must understand that without righteousness, a republic simply cannot exist. Now, Proverbs 13, understands this principle and articulates it clearly. It says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So, Understand this, righteousness and liberty are directly connected. When a nation steps away from the moral precepts of God, from the Word of God and from the ways of God, they place their hands in the fetters of sin and they become the devil's slaves. And that downward spiral that is happening in America right now is very close to what happened in Israel during the time of of the judges. In fact, I would argue that Proverbs 14:34 explains the book of Judges in a nutshell. Because we see the nation going back between righteousness and sin. And here in the book of Judges, we have a record of the dark and chaotic 350-year period in Israel's history before the monarchy. When we read that quote, there was no king in the land, And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In fact, you will notice that the author has used that phrase four times throughout the book to describe God's moral, uh, the free fall of God's people morally. You'll find it in chapter 17 and verse 6, chapter 18 and verse 1, 19 and verse 1, and at the end of the book, the very last verse, chapter 21 and verse 25, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I challenge you, friend, to find a more apt description of the moral relativism and the moral muck and the downhill slide of 21st century America. Now, Bible commentator Gary Enrig has given a great assessment of the book of Judges. Listen to his insight. He says, quote, Judges is perhaps the less studied and quoted from than most other historical books of Scripture. And yet, few periods are so much like our own as the times of the judges. At one moment, the nation is scaling the peaks of glory, and at the next, plunging headlong into the swamp of sin. In its pages, he said, are some of the most exciting events in biblical history. And on their heels march some of the saddest accounts of sinful failure and disobedience. Through it all, he said, there is found the hand of God working in, through, and despite His people, and one could actually make the same case of America, even though we are not a theocracy, even though we are not in a covenant relationship with God the way Israel was. As you chart the course of this nation, much of it has been tied to the spiritual fervor and the faith of the people, the Christian civilization in this country as they have trusted in God and many times prayed it back from the brink. And God blessed and God heard and God moved. We're looking at an introductory message today leading up to the understanding of how the book of Judges came to be. We're going to look at four reasons here today of causes that led to Israel's spiritual and national decline. And what you're going to notice here is a lot of overlap with our modern problems today facing this country. But I want you to notice as you take notes today, number one, the steps of Israel's decline. The steps of Israel's decline. The old Southern evangelist, Vance Havner, he had it right years ago. He gave this pattern of history. He said, quote, civilizations come and go, and they usually run a cycle from rags to riches to rot. Did you hear that, friend? Rags to riches to rot. Here in our opening chapters of Judges, we see how God's people started the rotting process as they compromised with sin and in four ways stepped down into the muck and the mire. The first step that led them away from the Lord was what I call incomplete obedience. Incomplete obedience. Start reading with me chapter 1 verse 1. The Bible says that after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. The old I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, His brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. And so Simeon went with him. And then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. Now, you'll remember that when Joshua led the people into that promised land, that he was given the task by the Lord to completely destroy and to drive out the pagan tribes that were living there in Canaan. You might think of this similarly to an oncologist who is doing surgery on a cancer patient. The doctor's goal in that situation is to remove every speck of malignant tumor from the body because he knows that if he doesn't, then that cancer will return and usually with a vengeance. This is very similar to what God has asked Joshua and his generation to do, to drive out the Canaanites and the Midianites and the, might say, termites, gigabytes, kryptonites, bugbites, all the other ites that were dwelling in the land like a spiritual cancer in that place that God had allotted for Abraham and his descendants. You see, God wanted these tribes totally dispossessed and driven out because He knew the danger they posed that if His people settled there and the pagan tribes were allowed to persist around them they would inevitably corrupt Israel with their idolatry with their immorality and with their evil and so as you keep reading in the book you understand that Joshua died before this incredibly important mission could be carried out and then the task of driving out the Canaanites gets passed on to the next generation And sadly, Judges 1 records that only a few tribes, we read here of two, the house of Judah and then the house of Simeon here, were successful in driving out the enemy from the land. And the majority of the other tribes failed to fully conquer the land. And the consequences of that is going to have a devastating effect in the long run. In fact, notice with me just how this plays out. Drop down to verse twenty-one, Judges chapter one. Look at what the Bible says. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, and so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And pattern emerges again. Verse twenty-seven. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor in its villages, and the inhabitants of Iblim in its villages, and Megiddo, and for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. When, the Canaan, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Notice verse 27. Uh, and following as we read, uh, the Bible says, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer or the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo, the inhabitants of Sidon. Nephthali, verse 33, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And so they lived among the Canaanites of the land, and they became forced into labor, the Bible says. So you see this ongoing pattern. I'm sure you get it right now. That God's people had incomplete obedience and because they did not drive the enemy out, the enemy conquered them. Other tribes, the Bible says, led to disobedience and then disobedience led to slavery, pain, oppression such that the pagan tribes, according to chapter 2, verses 1-3, through were a snare unto them. And that the hand of God was against him. Look at what the Bible says again. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, They shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Oh, my goodness. Incomplete obedience. Now, if you're a parent, you understand what this is all about. You ask your child to clean their room, and you come back 10, 15 minutes later, you check on their progress. You do an inventory of their room, you check the closet, you look in the drawers. Then maybe you peek underneath the bed and there you notice that all the dirty clothes, all the toys have been shoved under the bed out of sight. And the kid may say, I'm done, I've cleaned my room, Mom, I've cleaned my room, Dad. But yet, have they really? No. They've done a halfway job. They've only followed through with partial obedience, incomplete obedience. I did this as a kid. In fact, I can remember as a young youngster going through a phase where I went through this season in my life where I hated taking showers. <laughs> and uh, my mother uh, would tell me, she'd say, now son, when you get in there, you be sure you use soap and you use a washcloth. Make sure you clean good behind your ears and, and make sure you clean your ear in real good. I'm not I'm not trying to be crass. I'm just, if you mamas are here in the house today, you understand. And I, of course, would tell her, yeah, mama, yeah, I did that. But then, of course, The test would really come on Sunday. Put on my nice, clean, white dress shirt. Go to church. Be with my friends. Run around. Maybe even sweat a little bit. And then the revelation came when that dress shirt came off. Pulled it off, mama looked at it as she was doing the laundry and she noticed the dirty, the nastiness, the ring around the collar. I hadn't been obeying completely. I'd just been doing enough to get by, running through the shower enough to get wet, but not really obeying and not really cleaning. We had many a sit-down, come-to-Jesus meeting about personal hygiene. See, I was doing enough just to get by. And friend, that's the spirit of partial obedience. It's serving God with half a heart. It's looking at God's Word and understanding God's will and picking and choosing what parts we'd prefer to keep and what parts we'd rather not. Partial obedience sounds like this. It's saying, well, Lord, I'll go to church... But I won't get involved, too involved in serving. Don't ask me to teach you. Don't ask me to serve food. Don't ask me to sweep the floor. Don't ask me to be on a committee. Lord, I'll I'll give you the bare minimum. I'll go. I'll attend. I'll sit and listen. But I won't get involved. That's halfway partial obedience. It's also like this. It's saying, I'll read the Bible, Lord, but I won't give up my secret sin. I love my pornography. I love my alcohol. I love this illicit relationship. Lord, I'm going to hang on to this. That's partial obedience. Or saying, I'll give, but I won't forgive. You see, incomplete obedience ends up having a cascading effect. One disobedience lets sin stay. It grows It metastasizes like a cancer. And this is where Israel's downhill slide began. And it works, friend, the same way, whether it's an individual life, whether it's a church, whether it's a nation at whole, every defeat in the Christian life results from disobeying God's Word, from incomplete obedience. Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, quote, The sin that we fail to conquer will eventually be the sin that conquers God us. And so you see, friend, partial obedience is still disobedience. Delayed obedience is still disobedience. And I'm asking you today to do an inventory in your own life. Ask yourself, what ways have I been Incomplete in my obedience to the Lord. What sin have I allowed to fester and grow? What haven't I driven out of my life? What evil is persisting that I'm tolerating and allowing in? And God has asked me to do more. And I've chose to delay or to be incomplete in following through. That was the first step in Israel's decline. It was incomplete obedience. Then I also want you to notice a second step down. It's what I call indifference. Indifference, drop down to chapter 2 and verse 6 we'll read. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of a hundred and ten years. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance, in timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. I'm talking to you about indifference. And this was the second step that led Israel in their decline. It was a terrible case of what you might say, national apathy. You see, the older generation had failed to pass on their faith to the younger crowd, and so they were ignorant and apathetic. In other words, the generation after Joshua had lost its sense of wonder, its fear, its reverence for God, And the older generation could have described to them the many mighty acts of God, how He had caused the Jordan River to part when they crossed over. They could have told how they watched the walls of Jericho crumble like a sandcastle as they went in to conquer. They could have told the story of the long day where God caused the sun to stand still in the middle of the sky. And yet, when they tried to transfer this Story, this legacy, this information from one generation to the other, the newer crowd shrugged their shoulders and they said, Well, so what? That was then. This is now. God, what have you done for me today? And friend, what we need to understand here is spiritual apathy always leads to a spiritual apostasy. When our hearts grow cold, There's a falling away that happens. And the church is always just one generation away from extinction where we fail to keep alive the memory of God's mercy and God's truth. And this is what we are facing today in our churches. There's an indifference. There's an apathy. There's a I don't care attitude. uh, There is a nonchalantness, a laziness to the things of God. Pre-COVID, the church in the U.S. was struggling, right? I think much of this was covered up with a, a facade of prosperity. But one thing that COVID did was it ripped the facade off and it has allowed experts to begin to see, even today as we recover from that pandemic, just how weak the church has been and how much it took to recover as churches reopened in the face of all the radical cultural change that happened. You see, every 10 years, the American Bible Society and Barna Research do a a national survey. It's called the State of the Bible. In 2020, they refreshed their study. And listen to what they discovered. This is a description of indifference. I, I don't know if there's a better one. Listen to this. One in three churches... And churchgoers, one in three churchgoers, quit attending either in person or online and have not returned. Did you hear that? 33% of churchgoers have walked away from the church life, never to return. They say that up to 20% of churches in the U.S. could shut their doors permanently by the end of 2021. One-fifth of churches in America closed. Ichabod written over the door, never to be active again. Listen to this. 60% of churchgoers say that they personally only read the Bible less than five times a year. Is that not unbelievable to you? We say it's the Word of God. We believe that it might be in, in, in inspired, in, infallible, and yet, We don't make it a part of our daily life such as the point where most churchgoers say they only read it five times a year. God help us. Christian millennials, that is, the generation born between 1980 and 2000, that's my generation, 47% of millennials say they believe it is wrong to try and convert people by sharing the gospel. Why? Because they don't want to be labeled as a hater or a bigot or whatever epitaph that culture wants to throw on Christians today. You see, friend, we are teaching the next generation indifference when we show our children that church becomes optional, when we put other things ahead of going to the house of God. Well, we've got the ball game this week and... Uh, We've got to go to the lake, and uh, there's a trip, uh, a weekend getaway, and we teach our kids indifference when we show them that church is optional. When we dilute and change the Word of God to accommodate the culture and the spirit of the age, we teach them that God's Word doesn't have a priority, that it's elastic, that it's malleable, that it changes from one generation to the next, and they begin to believe in indifference about the things of God. When we fail to lead our families... When the Bible collects dust and the prayer room is cold, friend, that's the spirit of indifference that's crept in to the house of God today. The second generation syndrome manifests itself with two major symptoms. It's ignorance and indifference. I don't know about God, and I don't care that I don't know about God. And the sad reality is that Americans today are just as tepid towards God as Israel, backslidden as it was during the days of the judges. And so, my friend, there was incomplete obedience, there was indifference, but then also in this decline, there was idolatry. Read with me chapter 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah so that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And He gave them over to plunderers. He plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, they were in terrible distress. The third step down into the swamp of sin was when Israel began to adopt the pagan gods of the Canaanites. Now you need to understand that the Canaanite religion was based on a concept called imitative worship. And that's when you worship your God by behaving like Him. And the worship of Baal was perhaps one of the most depraved and degrading forms of worship ever devised. We read about the God and the goddess Baal and Ashtaroth being brought into the culture there of ancient Israel. Now who was Baal? They was the main deity of of the Canaanite religion. He was the god of rainfall and fertility. And he had a concubine, a female counterpart named Astaroth. And in this religious system, if you wanted to have a fruitful orchard, if you wanted to be blessed by Baal and have a bountiful harvest, then the way that you worship this god was by acting like him, which meant having sexual relations with a temple prostitute who was to be a representative of Astaroth. Notice also with this, historians tell us that the religion also glorified homosexuality, snake worship, and human sacrifice. Now, if you look at the Society of America today, we have two out of the three of those markers. We just finished the so-called Gay Pride Month through the month of June. Those 30 days set aside in our culture to celebrate... The LBGT lifestyle, our politicians, our celebrities, our media, the VIPs in our culture are all sending this message down our throats, creeping it into television shows, commercials. It's being paraded around in the streets that this is not a sinful thing. It's not an evil lifestyle. It's not an abomination, but it's just an alternative way to live isn't it interesting that they have adopted the rainbow colors as their pride and not knowing that that's a symbol of God's promise that He would not destroy the, water, the world by water in judgment again. We also have human sacrifice. It's called Planned Parenthood where we eradicate, destroy the lives of the unborn before they can ever come out of the womb. They tell us today thousands of babies aborted have their... Uh, bodies crushed and their brains sucked out of their heads all for the price of about four hundred dollars average cost of an abortion in this nation the price of a life and we would never put ourselves on the same moral platitude as the Canaanites and yet friends were there so it's easy to see why God hated Baal worship and why he commanded Israel to remove it from the land, to drive these people out, because if they were tolerant of it, if they accepted that then God knew it would lead to their downfall and the destruction. And the Bible says that the consequence of this syncretism was that God allowed the pagan people, the Canaanites, to plunder them, to enslave Israel. And what's so interesting about this is that the gods that Israel believed would bring them freedom were the gods that brought them bondage. That's exactly the way that sin works The devil gives us a lie. He sends us a temptation. He sells us a bill of goods. And the thing that we think is going to be pleasurable for a season, it's going to last. It's going to meet my need. It's going to fill the void. It's going to make me happy. It ends up causing us to be addicts and to be broken and to be hopeless and depressed and enslaved. And it takes us into bondage fact, as you study Judges, you're going to see six different times that Israel is going to fall into slavery. And what a vivid illustration this is of how sin always moves subtly. And when we allow it to settle in, it makes us slaves. Now, we've seen here indifference. We've seen idolatry. We've seen incomplete obedience. But you know what's interesting also as you... Think of the parallels between Israel and modern America. We've done the same thing in our nation. We've erected these idols. We've accepted them. We've venerated them. We've bowed to them and allowed them into church to dictate our policy, our thinking, our preaching, and our worship. In fact, if you look back over history, there were three monumental Supreme Court cases that really changed the moral direction of our country and made us fall away from God. You see, because when the judges in the land make something legal, people tacitly assume, well, if it's legal, it must be acceptable, it must be okay. And then they just adopt it into their life. 1962 was the first Engel versus Vital. It took prayer out of schools. Some of you in here remember what it was like. You've told me that in your day, the school day began with prayer over the intercom. The teacher would, homeroom, would hand a Bible to a student and ask them to read a psalm or a passage How far we have come from that. So that now you have a generation coming through the school systems where they're being taught to hate America, where they're being taught to accept the gay and lesbian lifestyle as normal, acceptable, alternative forms of family. They're being taught CRT. That's why back in your day, the greatest problem was running in the school halls. And today the greatest problem is wondering if a student is going to show up with an Uzi and blow the kids away. We've taught our kids that they're evolved pond scum. They're just an evolved ape. They're an animal. And yet we're surprised when they act like one and shed the blood of their classmates. Then there was 1973, Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion. And now today they're telling us that we're over 60 million lives extinguished since that decision was made. You see, we've done tenfold what Hitler ever dreamed he could do during his Third Reich as he was burning the Jews in the ovens of Auschwitz. And then in 2015. You remember Oberfell versus Hodges. That's the decision that legalized same-sex marriage. We watched the gay pride parades through the streets. We saw the White House under the Obama administration lit up under the colors of the gay flag. Now today we're at the point where we're talking about transgender rights, where if a man wakes up in the morning and he identifies himself as a, a woman, That we have to play along with his delusion. We have to accept that or else we're the homophobe. We're the bigot. We're the weirdo. We're the one who's disconnected. And friend, the Bible says very clearly in Romans 1, when you get to that point that you've had a sexual revolution and then a homosexual revolution, that God gives you over to a depraved mind, you don't know up from down, left from right, right from wrong, and at that point, you are already understanding the judgment of God has fallen upon your people. God help us. That's where we are today. But Israel wasn't done. They hadn't hit rock bottom yet. There was also one more rung in the ladder as they stepped down. There was intermarriage. Intermarriage, look at what verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3 tell us. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites, Jebusites. In verse 6, their daughters took to themselves for wives and their own daughters. They gave to their sons and they served their gods. You see, the last step in Israel's downward spiral was a complete and social integration with the surrounding tribes. And by intermarrying with the Canaanites, God's people were absorbed into their way of life. In other words, notice this. They had lost their cultural and their spiritual distinctiveness such to the point there was no way of telling the difference between God's people from the pagans. Reminds me of the old adage of what happens when the church marries the world. The saying goes like this. There's so much of the world in the church and so much of the church in the world that you can't tell the difference between the two. The problem is, is not when the boat is in the water, but when the water is in the boat. And when that happens, you begin to have the Titanic. And friend, I sometimes I feel as if we are rearranging chairs on the deck of the Titanic, the ship is going down. As I thought about Israel's decline, Israel's disobedience, Israel's debauchery, I couldn't help but be reminded of that story that the old... Firing Brimstone Evangelist, Mays Jackson, used to tell. Old Mays Jackson, he was a barn burner of a preacher. You can still find some of his messages on YouTube and the internet if you take time to look him up. But he used to tell a story about a preacher friend of his who got caught in sin. This preacher in South Carolina, he uh, lost his love for the Lord. He lost his fire for ministry. He he went worldly and he dropped out of church and out of ministry. He resigned his position. Well, Mays Jackson ran into him one time and he confronted his friend. He said, look, man, you can't do this. You're running from the call of God. You, you know there's a cost associated with this that, that God's going to get a hold of you. And God won't let you get away with this. And the preacher said back to Mays, listen, I gave God many good years. I sacrificed I put my family on the altar of ministry. I did the work. I'm burned out. I'm tired. I'm done. I'm washing my hands of ministry. Just leave me alone. You're not changing my mind. Well, Maze Jackson had a famous sermon. It went like this. The title was, God will set your fields on fire. He warned this preacher. He said, Look, if you're disobedient to the Lord, He's going to set your fields on fire. According to Mays, here's what happened to that preacher. That preacher completely dropped out of church. He went and got him a secular job. He started making money. More money than he had ever made in his life. That preacher was doing good. He moved his family into a bigger home. He bought him a new truck. He uh, gave his kids the things that he never could in life. But still, there was inside this, this nagging, this burning feeling inside that this preacher was disobedient to the will of God. He was out of God's will. And the story goes that one Sunday morning, this preacher was sitting on his front porch. He had the paper up in his face. He was reading, enjoying the day. His little boy came up to him. And he said, Daddy, when are we going to go back to church? I I miss church. I miss the singing. And I miss you preaching. This preacher had grown so cold to the things of God that he... snapped at the little boy, pulled his newspaper down, looked at him and said, Look at all the stuff that I gave you, son. Look at this nice house. Look at the bicycle that you have. Look at the toys that you've got. Why can't you just be happy? The preacher flipped that newspaper back up. He began to reading again. That little boy turned away. He started walking off from his daddy, picked up a baseball Started tossing it up in the air, was playing catch with himself as he walked across the yard. Tossed it up once, twice, three times. The ball came down and it landed on a rock. As that ball struck that rock, it bounced off and started rolling down the hill and went into the middle of the road. That boy, not thinking anything about traffic, didn't pay attention. And this big truck came around the bend. It didn't have time to stop preacher heard the squealing of those tires on that asphalt heard the scream of his son and by the time he got down there his son was already plastered there on the pavement this preacher heartbroken, the most hair-wrenching scene, blood-curdling scene you could imagine as a parent. He wrapped his dead boy up in his arms and Mays Jackson said that this backslid preacher then cried out to God, Lord, I'm listening now. I'm listening now. That's the question that we have to ask ourselves what does God have to do to get our attention, church, as we look at the downfall of our society, as we look in the brokenness in our own homes, as we understand the prodigal sons and daughters in our own families, as we see the coldness in our own hearts, What does God have to do? How much more do we have to suffer? What things does God have to allow to come into our lives to plunder us and to bring us pain? How many tears do we have to shed? Uh, How many cold, sleepless nights do we have to have before we take the cotton balls out of our ear and we say, God, I'm listening now. I'm listening now. Israel finally got to that point. The Bible said they were in great distress. That leads me to number two. We saw the steps of Israel's decline, but then number two, the salvation of Israel's deliverers. Notice what the Word of God says here. There's hope. Oh friend, don't tune me out yet. There is good news here. Notice verse 16 of chapter 2 what the Bible says. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who had plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, and they had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for him, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge for the Lord was moved with pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them but whenever the judge died they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods serving them and bowing down to them and they did not drop any of their practices for their stubborn ways as you open the book of judges it's bleak and it's hard to imagine a more darker situation. But in the midst of all this sin, all this evil, all this backsliding, the Bible says in verse 16 of chapter 2, that God raised up leaders to pull people out of their moral freefall. Now, one clarification, when we think of judges, our minds pictures a man or a woman sitting behind a bench wearing a black robe, holding a gavel, arbitrating in legal matters, but that's not what the Bible has in mind here. Instead, a judge in the biblical sense of Israel's history were military and spiritual leaders. They were ordinary men and women whom God chose, God anointed, God empowered to deliver His people from the oppression and from the sin that beset them. God called them from the rank and file of Israel. These were regular people that God did amazing things through to drive people's hearts back to the Lord, to depend upon Him. They were revivalists in that sense. These judges, as we will read, we're going to understand there's 12 of them. They're known for their faith, but as we read in the text, they're also known for their flaws and their failures. They were no greater than you or I. They were weak. They were broken. Uh, They were fallible and friend that's the call for you and me today that this book of Judges is filled with so much rebellion and sin it reminds us uh, gives us a picture of what we are facing today in this battle for the soul of our nation but what we see here is the mercy of God in all of this because every time that the nation fell into this pattern of They would go into sin. And then from sin into slavery. And then from slavery, supplication, they'd cry out to God in their misery. And then from supplication to salvation, God would send a judge. And He would lead the people to victory. That's the mercy of God. That God's ear is inclined to the cries of His people And when God saw His people wallowing in sin, when He saw them in bondage, when He saw them in oppression, the Bible says His heart was moved to send a man to raise up a woman to anoint somebody for the task of helping His people to understand that they didn't have to live in oppression, in slavery anymore. And these judges were flawed, but they pointed to something greater. In fact, to someone greater That mercy is ultimately what caused God to look down upon a whole world wallowing in sin, groping in darkness, and this God was moved with love and compassion, and He sent the ultimate deliverer, the one without sin, the one greater than Gideon, the one mightier than Barak, the one more virtuous than Othniel and Ehud, the one greater than all the judges, In this book, His name is Jesus Christ and He can secure everlasting deliverance. He fought the battle on the cross of Calvary. He paid our sin debt. He defeated our enemy Satan in death. It's at His feet. And today we can come to Him. He's the only hope. If you're tired of wallowing in the sin cycle, I'm here today to tell you there is One who will hear your cry. His ear is open to deliver you. He can reach down further from heaven than you can reach up from your pit, He can break your idols, He can forgive your immorality He can replace your indifference with worship and faithfulness He's the God of rescue He's the God of deliverance He's the God who turns back the enemy, who raises the dead who forgives the past who gives a second chance I'm talking today about the Deliverer, He's the way, the truth and the life, His name is Jesus Christ And His power is still available today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So how do we do this? How do we as God's people see national deliverance once again? How do we turn back the tide of evil and wickedness? Let me give you a story that I think sums it all up where it begins. The story goes that in 1940, there was a theology... Professor named Dr. Edwin Orr. And he took a group of students on a field trip to a famous religious historical site in England. And one of the stops there was to a place called the Epworth Rectory, where the famous preacher John Wesley lived. Now, in case none of that's ringing any bells with you, if you don't know those names, John and Charles Wesley were brothers. And these two brothers were responsible were sparking a great revival, and they actually founded the Methodist denomination. John Wesley was the circuit-riding preacher. He was the hellfire and brimstone messenger. And then there was Charles. He was the hymn writer. And these two brothers turned around the destiny of England. Well, in this tour, the house ended in the bedroom where the students noticed that the meager accommodations of John Wesley... And they noticed beside his bed, there were two worn spots in the floorboards of that home where John Wesley, this great revivalist, this man of God, would get down on day and night and there he would plead for God to send revival, for God to anoint him, for God to touch his preaching, and for God to do something in his generation. As he bowed there in prayer so many times, day and night, he actually wore out the floorboards. There were channels carved in that wood from where his knees had been. That gave quite a challenge to all of the students who were there as they saw that and they, they asked the significance and the tour guide gave them the explanation. And so after the tour was over, they went back on to, toward their bus. Dr. Orr was doing the head count and he noticed that there was one of his students missing. And So he we went back into the, the home and as he rounded the corner and he came up the steps, he felt like he was intruding in on a holy moment. Because there was one student. He would got down on his knees, placed his knees in those same places of the floorboards where those rivets had been worn down by Mr. Wesley. And as he approached the young man who was knelt there, he heard him saying this, Do it again, Lord. Lord, do it again. Send revival in my time. Lord, would you do it with me? Do it again, Lord. Professor touched the young man on the shoulder and indicated to him that it was time to go. You know who that young man was praying? It was Billy Graham. Billy Graham stood up and don't you know how God used him from that moment on as his anointed mouthpiece to thunder forth the truth of the gospel to more than any other preacher in the history of the church and how God has used that simple farm boy, that simple son of a dairy farmer to touch hearts and lives and to turn back a generation from darkness, wickedness, and evil and how God used one man almost in a judge-type way to lead a generation to light and to truth. You see, God answered the prayer of Billy Graham. And I think that's a prayer that we can pray in this dark time as we see the decline of our nation we can say as we grab hold of the horns of the altar, Lord, do it again. Do it in my generation. Lord, if You did it for Jonathan Edwards, if You did it, Lord, for the Wesley brothers, if You did it for D.L. Moody, if You did it, Lord, uh, for Charles Spurgeon, God, You can do it in our generation. You can send revival. You can break hard hearts. You can forgive the past. You can turn a nation around. You can turn our defeat into deliverance. Lord, do it again. And so I'm asking You today I can't do it alone, church. Will you link arms with me? Will you join me at the altar? Will you pray? Will you say, Lord, do it in our time? Will you say, God, send revival that you might rend the heavens? Do a work in our time, the likes of which we've never known, never seen before. Save the sinner. Bring the prodigal home. Lord, save our babies, our grandbabies. Devil, you can't have our schools. You can't have my children. You can't have my family. Not on my watch. This nation is. Lord, we're going to do all that we can to be salt and light. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Friend, that's the call today as we study the book of Judges. Think about it. Lord, will you do it again? Will you turn our defeat into deliverance?